family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host, looking forward to two hours of improvisational conversation, some cool music, a little street philosophy, and some surprises. Co-hosting with me today, Ron Van Warmer, in charge of How the Computer. Among the topics we'll discuss, an article. When I read the headline, I said, that can't be right. Good article, an opinion piece. The title is, I actually like teaching on Zoom. What? Gives his, gives his arguments, or not his arguments, his reasons. I think they're pretty good. We'll let you decide. Uh, also, one of the great pleasures in life is refinding a book in a dusty corner and realizing... Hey, it's time to reread it and getting new insights. So we'll give an interesting insight from The Great Transformation by Karen Armstrong. We'll have some street philosophy from Patrick Carlin, jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini. And when we open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox, we're going to hear a connection between a famous rock and roll song and a famous avant-garde jazz song and some other surprises as well so fasten your seatbelts inject yourself with whatever gets you motivated in the morning some caffeine or whatever do join us for the Woodstock Roundtable Open the pod bay doors, Al. Time to get crunked up here. <laughs> Good morning, right. Ron. Good morning, Doug. Feels colder than 20 degrees. It's about 16. Uh, 16 right double now. check. It was 20 in Kingston, 16 in Woodstock. Well, people, of course, wonder about global warming at a time like this. But the fact is, December and January were incredibly warm. And... It's supposed to be cold and dark, and even though we're well past halfway through the winter, uh, or at least a week or two past the midway point, it, this is the time it feels like the dead of winter. It does. I don't think it's supposed to be quite this cold in Texas, however. Well, there was an interesting—I uh, didn't have time to read all of the article this morning in the Sunday Times, but since you mentioned that, um, I'll go to that right now. Okay. All right. I was going to do another article, but so um, <laughs> we'll get to it. Let's see. Uh, well, it's the, it's the headline: uh, Texas blackouts point to coast to coast crises waiting to happen. Now you got to love the media because <laughs> what they did. And look, the New York Times does a lot of great stuff, but they're caught up in this thing. The anxiety sells. Yeah. Okay. Jeff Zucker, the head of uh, CNN, was caught <laughs> in a what he thought was a private conversation uh, with some of his key people saying, 
this was back in a March a year ago when the virus was first spreading. Mm-hmm. He said, "Keep those keep those anxiety headlines going. We're we're getting ratings." Ah. Um, and it's the job of a media executive to get ratings. I get it. Right. But uh, bad news not only travels fast, it generates income. It does. And unfortunately, uh, the fourth estate has fallen into the trap. So, yeah, we want to get attention. And, yes, uh, climate change is a serious issue. But Texas blackouts point to coast-to-coast crises waiting to happen. That's <laughs> That sounds like those um, promotions for the Friday the 13th horror movies. We wanted to do a program once called The Good News Radio Show, but nobody was interested. Nor, <laughs> quite frankly, nor would I be. <laughs> the Good News. No one cares. What we need is we need a balance between the two. Uh, you know, you know me. I, I love the worldwide, I, you know, I love YouTube. We're catching stuff. Last night, uh, I saw George, a tape of George Carlin doing his I Love Entropy routine, ah. which is must-viewing. We can't play it because he uses a lot of salty words, ah. which we love, but not appropriate for radio. <laughs> and talking about loves when systems come breaking down. Loves, you know, the excitement mm. of things falling apart. And if we're all honest, we all do. Yeah. You know, when the uh, when we have this mission to Mars and you didn't hear anything about it on the news until it got to that seven minutes of potential disaster. <laughs> and then it became headline news. Right. So, you know, and once it landed, eh, yeah, disappeared again. No big deal. Yeah. It didn't crash, though. There's no news. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but at any rate, the point is, yeah, I mean. I heard minus 18 degrees in southern Texas. I know. If you don't think climate change is already having an effect, think about not only the poor folks who lost their power and people who died from freezing and what it, how it disrupts the food supply. Uh, one Texan got a bill from his utility company for $17,000. <laughs> I thought that was fun. <laughs> because they charge by usage when high demand goes up. The price goes up. When demand <laughs> is down, the price goes down. Well, demand was up. Hey, you got to love capitalism. Hey. Got to love it. When it works great, it's wonderful. <laughs> and then you look at this and you go, what the heck? Yeah. What are people thinking? Well, they're thinking what they were taught. They're thinking that nothing's going to change. That's what they're thinking. Uh, they should read their Heraclitus again. But at any rate, um, and you think of all the, those fires in California. Mm-hmm climate change um and and not only climate change but us humans we've talked about this i was trying to think it's kind of interesting thought experiment right not from our standpoint although it's one interesting experiment but as from the standpoint of thought experiment high intelligent alien race studying the universe comes upon earth and looks at our history of somewhere we're somewhere between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand years on this planet, mm-hmm. Homo sapiens. What grade would we get? Now, of course, <laughs> an advanced alien civilization is probably beyond grading people, right? You know, um, but we we're brought up on the A to you know F grading system. I always thought, what would we get? I. They'd probably just turn around and go home. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, 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 they're, if they're advanced enough, they can they can investigate us 
from their yeah, home. Okay. Yes. And I'm th- and I'm trying to be fair about it because if you're cynical, you could say, well, look, after thousands of years of so-called modern civilization, uh, we're still fighting wars every day. Yeah. What's that about? Um, we're not particularly good neighbors. On the other hand, people have wrote, and I know it's counterintuitive, but factually provable that the the world has never been less violent right it's i've read that too which is we okay so let's say you can you can make that that's not the point the point is at this juncture with a worldwide web so we're so much more aware of everything that's going on it's not enough that we're less violent than 50 years ago but that we're not significantly less violent (laughs) that said i'm trying to be fair because on the plus side they'd say hmm as humans they have produced some pretty damn good tools. Yeah. Um, from the wheel, you know, fire wasn't an invention. That was a discovery. We didn't invent right. fire. We discovered it. <laughs> uh, but we, we, we did invent the wheel. Yeah. Um, we did the big one, which gets underrated, had a bigger effect than the, than the discovery of fire or the wheel, was the discovery of agriculture. Mm. Because without agriculture, the ability to grow food on a more massive scale than feeding just one family Mm -hmm. or even just one clan back in the day, without an organized agriculture, you don't have cities. That's right. You couldn't have uh, You wouldn't even have towns. Yeah, settlements, because you'd have to keep moving to get the uh, food. To follow the chain of food. Hunting and gathering. Right. So that was a big one. And um, then we probably go to another one that we take for granted. Uh, we write about this on our website, which we'll promote again, our Right Brain Network website that Ron helps me with, uh, which is the invention of writing, mm. an alphabet and writing. We'd all agree, I think, pretty damn good invention. Yeah. Greatly enhanced the spread of knowledge. But Plato, considered the greatest philosopher of all time by many, was very concerned about the effects of writing. People would stop memorizing things. Mm. Uh, that it would actually atrophy the brain because people would get too attached to symbols, right? And forget about experiencing life as directly as possible. Because when we are reading, whether, and it is different whether we read on a printed page or a screen, but, but w- whether we're reading on any medium or in any medium, we're one step divorced from immediate sensation yeah. uh, of what's happening. We're, we're, we're creating a symbolic representation of it, which allows for a lot of really good things. But as Marshall McLuhan pointed out in the 60s, got us kind of caught up in looking at everything as being straight li, li, straight lines. Linear, yeah. The world isn't. The world is nonlinear. Right. It curves. It spirals. <laughs> and we've, we lose some of that. Of course, we gain some of that. So I, writing was pretty big. Then the printing press. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after, the, then, then you had steam and the whole industrial age. Well, and we didn't invent it, but electricity we harnessed. Well, we start with steam came before electricity. Yeah. Then electricity, and uh, it was cleaner. Uh, 
and and then the uh, the vacuum tube and the right uh, the computer chip pretty good and we build heck of a good we build a lot of good dams bridges highways yeah so we get good grades there probably in the high b's <laughs> still fighting wars every day <laughs> blowing up everything that we create um having the technology to feed every person on this planet and not even coming close to it mm. So if you're cynical, you could see us getting like a D. Yeah. If we have the technology to destroy the world, and, and we, we haven't, haven't good, done it. You see, very good. It all has to go on the report card. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, we, we've talked about this before, thought experiment. If we were this so-called advanced alien civilization looking down on humans, I would say around 1955, they would have given us less than 50-50 chance that we'd be here today. Yeah. I bet you're right. If they're fighting, if they're fighting wars every day, and now they got nuclear weapons, they're done. They're probably finished. Let's not invest in them. <laughs> All right. So yeah, we get get a lot of good credit for that. So I was thinking this through. Uh -huh. Of course, projecting it from my human brain, but trying to be that advanced alien, and I ended up giving us. And I kept saying, "Oh, come on! It can't be that." I gave us a B minus. Wow. And the reason I gave it to B minus is because the book I found in a dusty corner of a bookshelf <laughs> is the book by the greatest uh, writer and researcher of religion, Karen Armstrong. Hmm. Uh, great writer, great researcher. And her book is The Great Transformation, the beginning of our religious trans. It's really about what the philosopher Carl Jaspers calls the axial age. Great phrase. Because an Axis is you know something that can shift things, mm -hmm. it can move things, and from approximately the the uh, 800 BC to 200 BC, amazing stuff happened in the then civilized world of the Middle East, Greece, uh, Turkey, India, China, were the primary areas where civilizations were growing. Obviously, not able to communicate much with each other. Mm -hmm. Some there, you could sail from the Middle East to Greece. You could, over, you know, uh, Marco Polo in the was it fifteenth right. century. You know, overland pass uh, walk to China from Italy, but not a lot of communication between these civilizations. And yet, what Karl Armstrong shows, and Carl Jasper showed earlier in the Axial Age is without a lot of communication, somehow very similar huge shifts in insights were happening in the brains and minds of people throughout mm. the civilized world, including the, the, the... And all religions were built on spiritual insights. They're kind of the written rules. Right. And, of course, a lot gets lost when you try to on clay tablets and and, <laughs> and impose rules for what are kind of mystical deep-seated intuitive spiritual insights one of which was and i said the greatest algorithm the human brain ever created unfortunately we still don't live by it but it was created during the actual age and that's the golden rule right which no other mammal on this planet came up with the ability to see through your own ego and your own sp your own clan mm -hmm. 
to say, wait a minute, I have a moral connection, ethical connection, to other humans, not just the ones in my clan. Right. Or the ones that agree with me. Um, and the golden rule came out in different forms. The one we heard, we heard most is uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's not as good because if you're a masochist, yeah. the golden rule doesn't work real well. <laughs> so if you go to the negative, it's a little more effective. Do not do unto others as you would not want them to do unto you. Ah, that one we get a little more immediately. Mm. Um, and I'll never forget, there's certain things you don't forget after 41 years on radio when John Dadolori joined us. He came twice, a great Zen master uh-huh. who founded the Zen Mountain Monastery in, in Phoenicia. Um, said on our program, when I brought that up, the golden rule kind of a spiritual algorithm, he says, yeah, in, in, Buddha, in, in Buddhist philosophy, and Buddhist, it gets tricky. Uh, he, he, he educated us that Buddhism is not a religion. It's right. really more a philosophy. Um, that the, the Buddhist version is uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you because they are you. Ah. So yeah, that has a little more bite to it. Those, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, uh, because the Buddha in his deep meditation discovered that at the deepest level of reality there is no distinction among human beings. Of course, on the relative he understood we did we don't wear the same clothes we don't go home to the same place but at the deepest level beyond gene we you know there's we're all connected and so therefore the golden rule is even more bite but we did that and that was thousands a couple thousand years ago yeah so um i picked the book up and when you read about that, you say, "Well, maybe we do." That's how. That's how I. That's how I raised us from a C minus to a B minus, grade for human beings overall in our history here uh-huh. on the planet. Um, because it's easy to give us a bad grade because of all the all the horrible things we're still doing to each other and to ourselves. Um, we're still a pretty nasty brute, but the the worst feature of us is we haven't learned to deal with the addictive part of our brains. Ah. If we don't really do the work, we're so susceptible. Our brains are so susceptible to seeking pleasure regardless of the consequences. Yeah. And that goes for not only folks who get addicted to heroin, but people get addicted to diet sodas, which are devastating in their adverse health effects. To constant wars, uh, and the headlines that we get, these anxiety-ridden headlines that we can't stop reading and stop creating. But you read a book like The Great Transformation, and you'll learn that at our best, we actually have some wisdom. (laughs) And uh, it's written down. Um. So yeah, and, and I end up with a B minus. I gave I gave us a B minus. Well, I think that's pretty high. I think that's high. yeah, maybe. I think that's pretty good. But you also have to look at all the charitable work that's done. Yeah. Look at the work you do. Yeah. Ron works for Family, which is a nonprofit that supports people who uh, don't have enough money for food and right. have severe severe emotional problems and 
don't know where to go. And there are many, many organizations uh, all over the uh, country and don't all over you, the world. Do you still work for the food bank? I work with them. With them? Yeah. Um, great organization. So, yeah, that's why I said B minus, you know? Yeah. Now, if you read the headlines, you're, all you're doing is reading the New York Times front page, the first 10 minutes of CNN or MSNBC or Fox <laughs> News, it's probably more like a C minus D plus. But I, 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 yeah. I, I'm having read Karen Armstrong, thinking about the work that you do for all those, you know, nonprofits. And they're a lot like you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with the B minus. All right. Well, I'll take it. <laughs> As a member of of mankind. But B minus doesn't B minus doesn't get you the best positions in life. Yeah. Well. But anyway, um, there was another article in the Times earlier this week. It's interesting that they did a pilot program. It's a great, great use of the English language. Right, a pilot program. That's exactly right. right. <laughs> We're going to fly some. See if something flies. Uh-huh. They um, took a dozen, a couple dozen, or whatever it is, a couple hundred people from around the country. They had to apply for who were from uh, poor neighborhoods and weren't great students, but wanted to be. Uh-huh. And they. Uh, chose a bunch of them to participate in a pilot program at, at Harvard. They did extremely well. Hmm. And the article said so this is freaking people out because the elites, now we're back to the D-plus grade. Right. <laughs> the elites, you know, the Ivy Leagues, that's not for, you know, that's for the people with the high... Uh, uh, I've actually blanked on the name because I hate them so much. Those eight, those tests, the uh, IQ. The, uh, the, no, not uh, the IQ test. The uh, the college boards. Okay, and the grades. And we all know that getting a good, a great grade, in many high schools is not about being wise or or, or a seeker mm. or curious. It's about feeding back, feeding back what the culture wants you to feed back. Right. So that was interesting. Um. And the uh, the article we're going to get to today about a guy who says, I love teaching on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, which goes against the grain of what you hear. Um, this pandemic is teaching us a lot. A lot of negative stuff, but a lot of uh, positive stuff about... Um, and the tricky thing about, about the, the vir- virtual reality. We know, we know it's negatives. We know we... I mean, the mental health crises in this in this country and all over the world have been exacerbated by these lockdowns. Uh, I mean, it's it's if you look at the stats, I mean, it's it's absolutely frightening. Um, we're talking about people who don't have enough food, who don't have ment- access to mental health mm-hmm. experts. Uh, teen suicides are. I mean, it, you know, the, the, this not all the data is in. We're still in the lockdown. But when this story is written, I know people get angry when I say this. Too bad. Uh, when, when, you know, having, having one of my jobs is studying this stuff, you know, researching this every week, it's going to be very clear that the way we lock down is going to, uh, hurt more people than it helped. Um, and, uh, we'll see. We'll see. The story hasn't been written yet, but 
this whole thing about virtual reality, we were going there anyway. Right. Now, this has it's been greatly accelerated because of the virus for obvious reasons, but we were going more virtual anyway. And as we stated on our website, which is rightbrainnetwork.org, we encourage you to go there because we... We just up, I just wrote a third essay, and uh-huh. we, update, we update links and quotes. Um, every new technology disorients the brain. Writing did. Mm-hmm. The alphabet did. The printing press did. Yeah. The telegraph did. The phone did. The phonograph did. The radio did. Television, television did. Computer. Get, you, that's what happens. It disorients at first. Mm-hmm. And yet, when we look back, I think we'd agree that every major advance in media technology has been a boon. Yeah, and we suck it up as well. I mean, we love we love radio when it came. We love television when it came. We love the Internet when it came. We love it. But with the Internet, you get a lot of feedback. From, well, people don't remember as much when they read on a screen. I say, good. What? what <laughs> You know, computers can remember. Uh, why? Why do I have to remember what just what you want to feed back to me? Isn't the purpose of education to draw out, to instill curiosity, mm-hmm. to try to get pe- students to seek out what really interests them and really dive into it? Much easier now. Yeah, absolutely. Is that what people use it for, though? People misuse everything. <laughs> Yeah. People misuse pharmaceutical drugs. Should we eliminate? Should we make all pharmaceutical drugs illegal? Should yeah. we make antibiotics? Should we make um, uh, cortisone? All those? Should we make pharmaceuticals yeah. illegal? Better people li- abuse them all the time. Better living through chemistry. So the fact that people abuse them doesn't mean they're not. Yeah, they're not going to be overall a positive influence. And it, an example this came up. Ron helped me with this in our interview that will be on our March webinar. We'll be telling you more about this with someone I've been looking forward to talking to for about two years. Ian McGilchrist, the mm. who has the greatest insights on the right hemisphere of the human brain and wrote the book we've been quoting from for two years called The Master and His Emissary. And we, so we're, the interview is live, but we recorded it for our live webinar in, in, in March. Right. And during our conversation, he was he lives on an island off the coast of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And we're doing Zoom, and it was like talking to your neighbor. Yeah. And at one point in the conversation, because um, my job is to not... Ag- bring up things I know we agree with, but also see if we can challenge each other a little bit. And so he he didn't agree with me that the World Wide Web and computer intelligence is as positive as I think it is. Mm-hmm. And he has his good reasons. But interestingly, he was saying something to the effect of that because uh, I say now, we're, I think it's great that we're all connected. It's also chaotic that we're all connected. And he made the point, which is very provable, that if you look at the great ideas and the things that have really shaken things up and changed things in cultures over the millennia, it's not large groups. Mm. It's small groups, even in the age of modern communications. 
And so I then said, yes, and didn't, and Margaret Mead had a great quote about that. And he said, yeah, that's a great one. And neither of us could remember the exact quote. So as he was talking, right, mm-hmm. I had my smartphone with me, right? I'm at your, I'm, I'm doing mm-hmm. this at your office. And I Google Margaret Mead, small group, changed the world. And in five seconds, I had the <laughs> quote. And I said, here's the quote. And he goes, great. And I said, and he goes, yeah, I guess the world wide web is you pretty know, good. Pretty good. In other words, we we understand both sides of it. It it's it's wreaking havoc on our nervous systems because we're every time we get on that screen, advertisers are trying to get our attention. Mm-hmm. Quack conspiracy theorists 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 are trying to get our attention. Um, four times a week. I, because I've been too lazy to figure out how to sh- how to block it. <laughs> uh, four times a week, I see a call. I forget. Don't pick up if it's a certain area uh-huh. code, and it's somebody trying to sell me a war- uh, an extended warranty on my car. Yeah, four times a week. Is that all? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I get it. It's yin and yang. I get it. Yeah, but at the same time, talking to one of the most intelligent human beings on the planet wanting to get the quote from Margaret Mead. I had it in 10 seconds. Right. What would, how long would that have taken me to get before we had smartphones and the world wide web? Well, I remember when I was in college and I would do Durham papers, I would go to the library and the highest technology there was the microfilm. And I would... Didn't they call it microfiche? Microfiche. What the hell does that word mean? I don't know what it means, but you would go and, and there was these big machines and you would... And they had tiny little film and, and it would, you know, blow it up onto the screen and that's how you did your research, finding the things that weren't, couldn't be in the library because there wasn't room. And you couldn't access that microfilm, microfiche. Uh-huh. Sounds like bad sushi, doesn't it? <laughs> like, 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 a cheap, like a cheap sushi restaurant serves you a microfiche. Yeah. yeah. But um, you couldn't access it from your... You had to go to a library exactly. or a school to even access the microfilm. Yeah. And it's now it's all on the computer. And obviously that and more. So I'll take... I'll take the negative because I, I just love being able to research things. Because now much of my work is research. Right. But if you're doing that research and you're doing it on the internet, you have to be very careful. So you, lear- all yeah. the so you learn skills. Stuff that's there that isn't real. There's a new term now called uh, lateral reading. Ah. Which I love because we're having to form new brain con- in our brain. Our brains are, I hate, they use the word plastic to, to say that it's not, that it's malleable. Right. right. We even in old age, our old age, we're growing new brain cells. Mm. We can make new synaptic connections. Takes a little work, um, but lateral uh, reading is basically learning a few skills. So, for example, someone sends me a piece from the that comes from an alt right website mm-hmm. with. It, Interesting subject. My first impulse is to not believe it because right. it's coming from someone who has clearly a political viewpoint. Right. First and foremost. And a political viewpoint that I find appalling. Uh-huh. Okay. 
So what I do is I look to see if they have linked to or at least cite, C-I-T-E, a source that I know is legitimate. Uh The Journal of the American Medical Association, um, whatever. If they don't, I will not accept what the article says because I'm assuming it's in a simply an opinion. Right. But if they back it up with a source, and I check that source out, and that's legitimate, now I'm considering that article as a source, even though I don't like where the source came from, because the information might be very, very good. Right. And often it is. But but most people are far too lazy to actually do that. People, and what you'll see is you'll see something on the internet, and then you'll see 100 people posting that, uh, that information, and that information... Uh, if you looked at it just even a little bit, you'd know that it was bogus. But people have been doing that since the written word. Ah, before. Wait, you don't think there was gossip in the <laughs> there was gossip in the cave person days? <laughs> I'm sure there was. I guarantee you, there was cave gossip. Yeah, we got uh, right. People spreading nasty rumors about their yeah. their their clan uh, members, and it continues today on a huge, huge scale. As does the access to wisdom and yeah. knowledge yeah. and interesting stuff. Oh, we humans. I don't know. I wouldn't do away with it. I'll have to rethink that B minus grade. We'll be right back. Before I get to our wonderful sponsors, why why do so many why do so many people who love good music hate the Eagles? I never understood that. They're, I thought they're such brilliant musicians. You know, um, I I hated the the Eagles at one time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you at one time you still hate them. Uh, I don't. Um, uh, I find I, you know, their album is the best selling album of all. The greatest time. hits album. Yes. Yeah, best selling album still today. And yet they're the, one of the most hated bands uh, around. So how does how does that well, juxtaposition work? The two lead guys were, and uh, uh, Glenn uh, Glenn Fry Glenn Fry died recently, and Don Henley, who were brilliant musicians. <laughs> a friend of mine wrote a book on the Eagles and oh, got, really? got to interview and said they they are as bad as you think. I mean, they yeah. really can be very miserable human beings. Well, okay, you know, Sigmund Freud was pretty nasty, too. It doesn't mean we don't read him. Um, <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're only going to like musicians who are nice people. Yeah, well, We have to eliminate a lot of folks. That's tricky. So I think part of it was their personalities outside of the music world. Yeah. I met Don Henley, and he was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, he was a nasty man. That's what his reputation is. You know, maybe it was a bad day, but... Not according to my friend who interviewed him extensively and wrote a book, and then they... With the <laughs> he wrote a book which was not um, a, uh, a a negative. It was just both. It was right. it was extolling their virtues as musicians and also calling them on their crap. Mm-hmm. And um, they got a Barnes and Noble to cancel my friend's talk, uh, talks. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. When he put his book out. Oh. No. Okay. So I get it. But um, but musically? Yeah, no. Especially when they bring Joe Walsh in? Yeah. I, you who's know, a rock idol? I just thought they were, at at the time, I guess the late 70s, or I thought they were overrated. Oh, um, yeah. Um, anyway, just interesting. But, yeah. Just interesting, because I was thinking what a great intro that song has. I know. I, and I love songs that have really cool, I don't know if the, well, in rock, I think the Beatles may have started that. Yeah. There was, nah, the Spectre had a couple interesting Phil Spector had a couple of interesting, but the Beatles were great for that. Um, I remember when I saw A Hard Day's Night, the movie in 64, when the Beatles were still pretty new. Yeah. And I first heard the song, If I Fell. What? It was so different to my ears because the it has this really cool intro, which is in a totally different key from the rest of the song. Mm. They and did that a lot. We weren't expecting that in rock. Right. No, you're right. You know, it's cool, but that's, we'll, we'll save that for the jukebox. Okay. Let me get to, get to my answer. <laughs> this is the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthy, your host, with Ron Van Warmer co-hosting, and he'll stick around after I leave at 9 to play you great music, How the Computer Helping Out. Talking about a lot of stuff, but um, <clears throat> uh, let's go to this article from earlier this week, New York Times opinion piece. And um, it was written by a teacher out at UCLA who has one of those classes with like 80 students. Mm. I always like the smaller classes because then there was really interaction. And he, the title of his article is, I guess, meant to get our attention because you go, what? <laughs> uh, but the, um, the article... It's about how he loves teaching over Zoom. Hmm. And uh, that's an alternate uh, opinion. Yes. From most. And I didn't want to print it out because that's paper and wasting all this <laughs> stuff. So I have it here in my smartphone somewhere. Here it is. <laughs> Microfiche. <laughs> <clears throat> Let's give the author some credit. <clears throat> Although, because listen, my sister's a high school teacher, teaches Italian in New Jersey. And she has told me how ridiculously difficult it is when <clears throat> most parents are afraid to send their kids to school. So she has only a handful of students in the class. So she has to teach them while she's teaching most of the kids on Zoom. Hmm. That's pretty tough. Yeah. But um, this gentleman, of course, I'm, I'm not getting connected. Now, here we go. I actually like teaching on Zoom. Uh, the, general, the, the professor is Vietnamese. His last name is N-G-U-Y-E-N. We could ask Google how to pronounce that. Nguyen? Perhaps. Um, he's a contributing opinion writer, an author of a novel called The Sympathizer, a professor of English and American Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Southern California. Here's what he writes. Here's an unpopular opinion. I like teaching on Zoom. <laughs> Many accounts of teaching on Zoom or other online platforms recount its horrors, and much is horrible. 
Teachers and students without stable internet connections or adequate technology. Too much intimacy with overcrowded homes that teachers or students might find embarrassing for others to see. And not enough intimacy with the human connection attenuated online. As a college professor, I too miss some of the elements of teaching in a classroom, including the intellectual energy that can flow around a seminar table, the performative aspect of lecturing to a large live audience, and little chats that take place by happenstance during breaks or after class with students. What I don't miss is my 10-mile drive to campus and back. Mm -hmm. I don't miss pondering my wardrobe choices in the morning. (laughs) The relative informality of the Zoom era means that I would feel overdressed if I wore a blazer to teach. And if I don't wear a blazer, I don't have to wear slacks or put on shoes. (laughs) Why would I wear shoes inside my house anyway? More important, with my smaller graduate classes of 10 to 20 students, I've noticed a little fall off in intellectual quality. Looking at 10 or 20 faces on a screen is manageable, and the experience is pretty faithful to uh, a real-world seminar. Breakout rooms for smaller discussions are simple to arrange, and they lack the cacophony of overheard conversations in live settings. Mm -hmm. My teaching evaluations have been positive, if a little less effusive than usual, perhaps because the lack of human warmth that comes from being face-to-face. Video conferencing however, allows for meetings with far-flung participants elsewhere in the country or in other countries that would have been too expensive and environmentally wasteful to convene in the live era. Now, it's customary to have a visitor call in from across the country or across an ocean to conduct seminars with colleagues from around the world. Less human warmth, but more human connection. I am now teaching about 100 undergraduate students in a class on the American War in Vietnam. If a lecture is only someone talking for an hour, that can be stultifying on video. But it's also true in a classroom. Back in the live era, I did my best to animate my lectures by roaming the lecture hall, memorizing students' names so I could call on them, encouraging questions, using PowerPoint slides with photos, quotations, clips of movies and documentaries. Teachers who haven't done multimedia lectures might reasonably experience an extra burden of work preparing them for Zoom. But multimedia lectures work easily and even better on Zoom. I no longer have to memorize students' names. Their names are listed (laughs) underneath their faces. And on Zoom, the students get a close-up of the photos and video clips. And with the lectures automatically recorded, they can review them or, if they miss a lecture, listen to them later. Mm. Surprisingly, the discussions in my video classes have been better than those in the live era. Wow. Now, that, that... a lot of us wouldn't have swallowed. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, the discussions in my video classes have been better than those in the live era. I don't need to look out at a sea of a hundred stone faces or a hundred blank boxes. Instead, I ask a half dozen students to participate in a student panel for each lecture. I call on them, ask them questions throughout the lecture, which means the class doesn't have to listen to just me all the time. It turns out that the students are much less shy speaking on video than they might be before a live audience. Hmm. Less human worth, but less stage fright. <clears throat> I wonder if that's more true in a, in a university setting than in a high school setting. I, I think that in high school, kids are less 
uh, apt to inter interact on. He Zoom. does point out that this would not work, say, in elementary schools, right? Where kids apps, and this is why it's a crime that all kids are in schools. I'm not going to get into a fight with people about because we know the statistics. Uh, they're not as vulnerable, and they're not spreading it. Those are the stats. But um, too many millions of kids are still not in school. Kids need human interaction. They need to be playing with their friends. Um, they need that. Right. And so yet. you're right. High school is probably, border, probably a little of both. But college, you know. And well, yet what mm. we're asking those kids to go to is a factory <laughs> where they're going to learn to memorize things that they're told to and not regurgitate be, them. not be educated to draw out and i and 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 um, which can happen both live and on zoom but uh, this professor's point is certainly at the college level why he considers it an advantage to teach on mm-hmm. zoom outlier opinion one i kind of am, you know warming up to well there's no way that we're going back Completely correct. To we, the, we don't go the back traditional way of teaching. No. This is going to be <clears throat> with us for. Ever. And if we think about it just for a moment here, apart from the amygdala of the brain, which is going, what are you crazy? This video, we need, we need to be in touch with each other. Yeah, we do. But look at the advantages of video conferencing. As he points out, you can have an engaging conversation on an interesting and important subject with people from all around the world in live time. Mm-hmm, exactly. It doesn't matter whether you're off the coast of Scotland, the coast of uh, Cambodia, or the coast of Staten Island. And I could go to Yale or <clears throat> Princeton without going to the state. There you go. I could stay home and still attend university anywhere in the world. So... We'll continue. Student chatter in class is now also fun. I wouldn't want students chatting in a live class, but I like seeing their occasional exclamations in the chat window. As when one amazed student said of Country Joe and the Fish, could you pull up, I feel like I'm fixing to die rag. Uh, Some of our listeners may not be familiar with that. Maybe the greatest anti-war song to ever make it on FM radio back in the late 60s. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, we're not forgetting Dylan and the great Phil Oaks, but but the country Joe had that great because it was fun. While it was uh, skewing the stupidity of the Vietnam like, War. I feel like I feel like I'm fixing to die. Rag, country Joe. If you put up country Joe, he only had one or two hits, so <laughs> it'll come up. But anyway, his point was that. Student chatter in class is actually fun. I wouldn't want students chatting in a live class, but I like seeing their occasional exclamations in the chat window as when one amazed student said of Country Joe and the Fish's 1965 song, I feel like I'm fixing to die rag, this song kind of slaps. Polling students' opinions is easy too. I tried to do this with handheld clickers years ago. The technology was costly and cumbersome. There are also some environmental benefits to video teaching. Though digital interfacing still has a green cost, it can be less than that of physical interfacing. As I write this during my office hours, for which no student has ever shown up, (laughs) (laughs) I take comfort in knowing that I did not have to drive to campus to sit in an office waiting for no one to come. Mm. To be sure, 
I'm a college professor. I don't assume that what's true for me is true for, say, elementary school teachers. It's no doubt true that smaller children need less screen time and benefit from being in one another's company. Let's get our elementary school kids back in school, please. Uh, they need less screen time, more being in others' company and other of their colleagues, their contemporaries' company, while being forced into isolation at home has been damaging to many. I'm also aware that whether or not one enjoys video teaching as a teacher or student, <clears throat> let me try that again. I'm also aware that whether or not one enjoys video teaching as a teacher or student is saturated with issues of temperament, learning preference or ability, access space, student-teacher ratio, and quality of technology. In other words, we still have folks who don't have good technology mm. uh, in low-income neighborhoods and all that. we got to get that fixed, too. There are right. still issues with it. But let's be honest. Those kids weren't getting the best education anyway. Which is a well, shame. Exactly. Because they're not getting the schools. The schools they're going to aren't the schools that are getting the money. But as we just talked about, a pilot program that allowed kids from uh, poor neighborhoods who applied and qualified, showing that they may not have had great grades, but they had great curiosity, were allowed to participate in a program at Harvard virtually. They didn't have to travel there. Right. And... Um, they all did. They all got good grades because they were interested in the topic. Um, <clears throat> they couldn't have afforded to, you know. Try. Right. But those issues affect live classrooms as well, which means that technology or the lack of it, Zoom or no Zoom, is perhaps less important to a good educational experience than socioeconomic equity, the competence of teachers, and the willingness of students. Finally. I'm mindful that many college teachers are already underpaid, have too many students, are always on call, and have no job security. It's easy to imagine a situation where video conferencing allows for even greater demands on overworked teachers. But again, the problem is not with the technology as with the exploitative academic marketplace. Good mm. point. Mm -hmm. Okay? So there are issues with the technology, but let's at least distinguish them from issues that are true whether you're Zooming or, or, or live. Right. And <clears throat> here's the other fact. This gets back to McLuhan's point that every new major technology disorients the brain before we adapt to it. Um, <clears throat> and that is that the technology is going to get better. Right. It already has. And it's going to get better quickly. Yeah. And a lot of the glitches that make the virtual teaching experience, really challenging. Particularly, I'm thinking of my sister in high school who's trying to teach seven or eight kids who are, who are allowed to get it, who their, their parents let them come to class. Mm -hmm. At the same time, she's got to teach most of the students on a computer screen. That's quite a lot of gymnastics to do. <laughs> so, you know, we got to perfect this. But I like his viewpoint. Yeah. I like the fact that he's giving us the other side of what is an yeah. important. Uh, I like the fact that I'm hearing somebody finding a positive, <clears throat> you know, uh, aspect to yeah. all of this because I don't think it's going away. Oh, no. We're so not going back. We better get used yeah. to it. Forget about going back to what's considered normal. And normal's overrated anyway. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. Always has been. Always has been. So um, say hello to the abnormal. Speaking of which, our favorite street philosopher. We can always count on him 
for a little bit of an outlier perspective. Patrick Carlin joins us. Patrick, good morning. Well, how you doing? <clears throat> but to tell you, before I get into any of this other brain stuff and all, which I really like everything I heard, and you solidified an idea that Dennis and I are going to mess my son in California. He'll be back here in April. And we're going to zoom in on Zoom or something like that with Practical Reality 101. And I took and laid a little bit of that on uh, some postgraduate students down at Hunter College. And they were getting ready to be uh, put into the neighborhoods to deal with the neighborhood kids and stuff. And the nicest thing I saw is when I met all these young people, they were the neighborhood kids. There were black dudes in there and Puerto Rican chicks and stuff like this. And, uh, you know, Irish and everybody mingled. It was like uh, Welcome Back, Cotter, which I want to thank John Sebastian, man, for being such a human being, man, that uh, you just listen to Cotter and, and listen to his, you know, gritty in the city. I mean, the man has been there anyway. Uh, that's talking about local people. But I'm prescient, and I deal with uh, spiritual st- stuff. I can't help it. And uh, I was in there doing uh, things. With, uh, the other morning, I'm talking to my boy, Packy. He was making breakfast. And I said, I'm going to dedicate this set today, Packy, to Norman Beale, man, because the poor dude ran out of, and Packy screamed what he had run out of. And uh, so I got in and I started a thing with uh, Turn Off the News, man. Willie Nelson's son, Lucas Nelson, a true young dude all on his own and stuff, had written this magnificent song. And I love the lyric. I believe uh, I believe that all the hearts are, are, are kind, guys, just loading food on stuff and water and all. Uh, a lot of things bring out the best in people and the worst. Well, you dismiss the worst, and people like that get dealt with by other people. And uh, I just observed that, and I got into the good, and then I did Good News by Amy Helm. And I said, I just had a little, few little news things, and I did Coast to Coast Emergencies by you. I do this stuff for myself. I make these lists at home. <laughs> and... Uh, I played Coast to Coast Emergencies by George Carlin, and uh, it was right in, it. You, you just blow your mind on this Coast to Coast crap. And I want to defend the Eagles, man. I'm sorry. I love Don Henley. You go ahead and play in a New York minute, and go and play uh, at the Sunset Grill. Ooh. And No, man, and, and play uh, The Last Resort. And listen to him, What Makes the Irish Heart Beat, singing it with uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, man, and tell me about Don Henley. And I never met the dude, and you ain't supposed to get along with people. I'm going to tell you right now, if I ever meet Don Henley, it'll be just like when I met Levon Helm. And you just look at each other, and you know that you're hip to the jive, and everything progresses from there. And I had heard that, you know, Chuck Berry, this Chuck Berry, that hard to get along with. I had that little band that I was managing where they were the lead guitar and the bass players were both 17 and they were dynamite. And they used to back Big Joe Turner once a month. And their 12 year old, their 15 year old brother uh, looked like Prince Valiant beaten on a double kick drum set. 
and little dude twelve is into the uh, into the. I got him on a Hammond B three blowing through a Leslie, and he's a small size twelve. And Chuck walked into that gig in Orange County, and it was like nineteen seventy two, and his eyes got very large. And Chuck and I said, Chuck, these guys are cool. Let's go talk. And uh, he says, he looked at the bass player, and he says, E flat, B flat. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, listen, man, I said, uh, we, uh, they do your stuff all the time. Relax and have fun. And by the time that weekend was over, man, <laughs> me and Chuck were good pals. So that's life and, you know, just meeting people and, and just being yourself and stuff. But uh, I, I don't make judgments like Joe Walsh. <clears throat> Joe Walsh, I was a limo driver, and I go to pick him up on a Friday afternoon, and he's out by Santa Barbara, one of the suburbs there up in the hills, beautiful joint. And uh, the, he starts to get in the limo, and we start off real good because he calls me Patrick, not driver, and that's cool. I, I don't judge people, but I know what I'm, who I'm working with. And he says, Patrick, and I say, hey, how you doing? And he says, do you think we could take Pacific Coast Highway down to LAX instead of the freeway? And I, I said, Joe, you, I said, you got soul, man. And uh, so we motored down the PCHs, and we just had a wonderful thing. So the fact that the people didn't like the Eagles only made me like them more. <laughs> Well, you listen to that one on New Kid in Town. Oh, love and it. And she'll never forget you until somebody else comes along. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know on, what that song guys. was written about? You know I want to tell you about teaching. All right. Uh, I want to I want to do this practical one oh practical reality. One minute. You got one minute. And you're going to see what happens. And I love you. And thank you guys for, uh, for making me uh, think about the human race. Well, they're, the reason we get up people. early to do this show is to keep your brain stimulated because we well, need you your brain. And you're telling me that old people are making new brain cells. Yep. And I was worried about that now that I'm getting into middle age. And I just, uh, that if I took heart. Thank oh, you yeah. so much, man. I love this program. Well, we love you, and we always you need a dose of Patrick every week to keep us on our toes. Thanks. Best of the family. Talk to you next week. Our good friend Patrick Carlin, personal friend of the Big Electron. We're going to be right back with our second hour of the Woodstock Roundtable. Okay.